Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today, let's get right to it. On your screen is a Guardian article, a British newspaper, entitled Phil Spencer on the Future of Xbox. We still want to take risks with games. Now, what does he mean by that? That's going to be at the crux of our discussion here today. But already, even though this article has only been up for a few hours, it's been covered in places like VG247. Phil Spencer still sees a future for story-driven games. And GameSpot, Phil Spencer expects to see game development hubs in new regions worldwide. And again, he does talk about those things in this article, and he does specifically talk about narrative games. Or does he? One of the things we'll be discussing is what's a quote, what's editorialization from The Guardian. And also we'll know before we get started that this is, again, in a British newspaper. We just talked about Herman Holst of PlayStation and Sony talking to British GQ, as Jim Ryan did last year. Sony and Xbox seem to be having a fight in British articles uh, in a way that's pretty amusing to me, especially since they aren't necessarily giving these same kinds of quotes and access and attention to what I would usually consider the traditional outlets here in the U.S., IGN, GameSpot, Polygon, Kotaku, whomever you might think of when you think about finding game news here in America. But one of the things I wanted to lay out, one of the reasons I wanted to make this video is because I think it's not as clear that Phil Spencer is taking the side of a single-player narrative player, right? That somebody that just loves cinematic adventures, that loves God of War, that loves, heck, Ghost of Tsushima, most of the things that Sony does that focuses on that single-player experience. And one of the things that Phil Spencer wants to do in this interview is establish that Xbox is also going to be participating in that space. And I have no doubt that they will be, especially since they've bought half the studios on the planet Earth in order to make that happen. But I think there's a lot of folks that are reading between the lines here, even just currently on my social media and elsewhere in the articles like the ones that I pointed out. So I wanted to talk with you about them because I think like so many of the things that we see in messaging and articles of this type, there are ways to read it that confirm your biases and there are ways to read it that say, hmm, maybe they're not saying exactly what I think they're saying and especially pay attention to the word risks and who is using what quotes. Right? When we look at this article, I've highlighted in yellow and I think in red what the author here, Keith Stewart at The Guardian, is editorializing about. And I've highlighted in green when Phil Spencer talks. And I've highlighted in blue when Matt Booty talks. Matt Booty being the head of studios, the one in charge of actually developing content with the Xbox-owned studios. And you'll see there's a lot of legwork done by the framing of the answers to these questions in this article. I will, of course, link this so that you can discuss it. And I'll also note before we talk about the substance here that some of what you're going to hear is a little bit more editorial from me than pure messaging discussion, pure business, pure law. Because obviously, as you've probably heard in Virtual Legality, I love my Xbox. I was just playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla on it the other day. And I want to see them succeed because I think competition between Sony and Nintendo and Xbox is great. And I think they will succeed. I think everybody's got an interesting model here. But I also don't want to just gild the lily and take everything that we see without using that grain of salt that we like to do. So you'll hear me editorializing a bit about what I am hearing versus what I think other people are interpreting it as. So let's take a look at this Guardian article. Where does that leave offbeat ideas and concepts? Where does it leave single player narrative? Where does the introduction of, in this first paragraph, games as a service, leave those things? Microsoft has focused its efforts on cross-platform connected games, says the writer here, and I think they're right. Is there still room for traditional forms of narrative games on the Xbox Series X? And now we get our first Phil Spencer quote. 
I think we're probably building more of those now than we've been in the history of Xbox. A couple of things here. First of all, you'll note that the actual quote, the words out of Phil Spencer's mouth are, we're building more of those. And we have to assume, hopefully they're not lying to us, that more of those is a reference to this editorialized written question of narrative games. And probably there's some nuance missing there for what Phil Spencer is actually talking about. But if we assume it's, hey, are you going to make narrative games? And then we're going to make more of those now than we've been in the history of Xbox. Okay, that's interesting. Platform holders, whether that platform is subscription or a hardware device or a store, are actively investing in new and probably more risky things. Because if it works, we get value out of bringing players into the ecosystem. And I don't know that that was ever not the case. So we're going to take a step back again in the history of video games, right? Nintendo, back in the 80s, PlayStation in the 90s, wherever you want to go to look at this question, they were always investing in making video games to bring people into their ecosystem because they always made money on licensing the rights to make games on their system. Now, there was a big legal fight in the 80s about Nintendo and what you could put on their system and all this kind of good stuff. But in general now, if you want to make a PlayStation game, Sony's going to get a publishing agreement with you. They're going to get a cut of the money that you make from using their platform, using their audience. And that's just the way things are. So every side has always been invested in increasing that ecosystem. That's not new. What is potentially new is the way this question and answer is framed here by Mr. Spencer. So we've got what we think is a question about narrative games. We've got an answer that says we're making a lot of those. And then we've got a secondary answer, which maybe follows from that first sentence. Hopefully there's not a lot of stuff that's missing in between these two sentences that says we want to invest in risky things. So in his head, Phil Spencer, the head of Xbox here, is thinking that narrative games, single player games are more risky things than potentially what it's been compared to as games as a service. We don't know the contours of this conversation, but it's useful to understand that Microsoft on the whole appears to think that single player, cinematic, narrative games, epics, whatever you want to call them, are more risky. And when you think something is more risky, you're less likely to do it, or you're more likely to pull the plug when something doesn't work out. We are seeing that all over the place in video games. We see games get launched and then pulled back. We saw this with Amazon Game Studios. I think we saw this most recently with the, the Magic the Gathering Diablo game that got pulled before it was ever released. You see these attempts at putting something out there and then pulled if you don't believe in them. Google Stadia might not be long for this world because I don't know that anybody believes that Google's fully behind that. And so if you're in the bucket of thinking that something is risky already, then you're going to be more likely to step cautiously around the creation of those items. And that's not a surprise necessarily for those of us that follow Microsoft. They haven't been making Sony-type single-player games very often. In fact, their closest is probably Halo, and Halo was quickly eaten up by its multiplayer, which is fantastic. I love Halo multiplayer. Uh, but Halo has not been a single-player-only franchise uh, for a very, very long time, or even a single-player-focused franchise. Continuing with the article, then, we get some more editorializing from the Guardian author. The thing is, building a gigantic self-contained narrative game is riskier now than it has ever been. To get a team of hundreds of developers working for several years on a project requires a budget in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, there's really no question that if you want to make a big gargantuan game, whether it's Red Dead Redemption 2, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, something just absolutely enormous, that you're talking about budgets the likes of which we have never seen if you want to compete on that framework. However, 
when we talk about single-player narrative games, I don't think that we necessarily have to get to that size. In fact, I think it's destructive in many, many ways. One of the conversations people have been having around Assassin's Creed and Valhalla and Odyssey and all the other stuff that Ubisoft has been putting out there is that they're probably too big. Everybody wants to get efficiency on the dollar, absolutely. But when you get to a 100-hour game, people like me who run a law firm and have a YouTube channel and do other things besides just playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla will never see most of the stuff that you put in there, even if they're enjoying the experience. And is that a better product than something that is smaller and more constrained? I'd argue that it isn't. And certainly if you're trying to say, hey, narrative games are important to us, it kind of belies the answer here to suggest that, oh, when we're talking about narrative games, we must be talking about something that takes $200 million and 1,100 people to make in order for something to be a self-contained narrative. In fact, when I think about some of my favorite experiences with narrative games, let's talk about Metal Gear Solid, for instance. I think you could beat that in probably six, six and a half hours. And I've played it six times and it stood out in my memory and it launched a series and a career, if we're being honest, here in the United States at least. And those types of games can survive. They have their place. And yet, I don't think they are being properly managed or properly supported by most of the big players. Maybe Nintendo's an exception to that rule. But we skip ahead to this, hey, it's riskier than it has ever been. And I don't think that, in fact, has to be the case. You have stronger engines than you've ever had. You have better support from multiple licensor organizations with those engines than you've ever had. You have the ability to make things that are reasonable in length, and yet you move into games as a service. Why? Because there's tons of money there. If you succeed in a games and a service launch, then you make all the bucks, right? If you go and you actually get a successful game like Fortnite out there, well, then you have enough money to sue everybody on planet Earth should you feel so inclined. Now, Microsoft already has that money, but you always want more money if you're running a company. And yet, they frame it as a portion of risk, presumably based on cost. And I don't think that's accurate. The, the video gaming world is completely covered with failures of single-player entities that tried to make something that was multiplayer, that was games as a service. I brought up here Anthem. We've talked about Marvel's Avengers, which I actually like, but which is a much stronger single-player story game than it is a live services game, and which they really should have leaned into their skill set. This is the folks that had made things like Deus Ex and things like the newest Tomb Raider, and instead they tried to make a games as a service game, and it just doesn't work. And then you get all these articles about concurrent players and there's nothing really riskier than failing, falling completely on your face when you try to put something like that out there. But yes, you see the Warframes, you see the Fortnites. In Microsoft's camp, you see Sea of Thieves that managed to make it through a very, very rocky start and now presumably is making them a significant chunk of change. But they aren't single-player narrative games. And if you're somebody like me that really looks at a game of the year list or looks at what is really memorable, it's almost always something with a strong story, something that had something to say that was a single-player experience, even though I enjoy multiplayer as much as the next person. Continuing with the editorial, however, Spencer sees an opportunity in using modern platforms and technologies to test out ideas and build a community of fans before release. So, Again, we have to assume that this interview goes in the direction that The Guardian says it's gone. Uh, but if we look at what's happened here, they ask about narrative games. He says, oh, we're probably making a ton of those because we believe in risky stuff. However, hey, look, we've got technology that allows us to get out of some of that risk. Spencer sees an opportunity to bring an early access type service to the Xbox Series SX. And then his quote, when we can stream to any device, 
a PC or could be a phone, we can really look at how we make more of these kinds of early access experiences, even as a funding model for creators sometimes. I think it can open up a tighter relationship between creator and consumer. Creators are a huge focus for us right now. So in my thumbnail, I said Xbox wants to take risks, but would prefer that you take them then instead. This is part of what I was saying. Okay, yes, we believe in new experiences. We believe in narratives, potentially. Uh, we're surely making a lot of those right now. And some of this comes from the fact that Microsoft, even after all their purchases, hasn't had enough of a runway to start delivering on what those asset acquisitions mean. Hopefully they're fantastic, but we just don't know right now. And we have to guess at what they will wind up being. But also, hey, if there's something that seems a little bit odd, let's run some early access. Let's see if there's a community that exists here. And certainly early access can work well with some games, but there's a lot of bad things that can happen with early access too. In fact, one of those things is from one of their newest studios, Double Fine, who canceled some things when they were on PC in early access and has played what I consider to be a little fast and loose with what they owe to somebody in terms of communications and what they're going to deliver as a final product in that respect, but all on the understanding that the risk of putting something out there then falls on the people that would otherwise support you early on. And in fact, when they talk about this, as The Guardian says, they aren't even talking necessarily about the double fines or the actual development teams of the world. Guardian says by creators, Spencer doesn't just mean game developers. He's also talking about player contributions. Microsoft has been a creator-led company from the beginning, Spencer says. I mean, on DOS, anybody could build an app. You were a game publisher if you had a compiler and a floppy drive. You just built your game, copied it over to a floppy, put it in a Ziploc, and you're selling. You're a game publisher. I like that access, and I want to get back to that as an industry. Matt Booty, head of Microsoft Studios, picks up the lead from there. I think we will see a lot of games start to include things that are based around scripting and the ability to add to the game. With Forza Horizon 5, we added the ability to design challenges and obstacle courses. We've had Halo Forge, which lets you design your own multiplayer levels. In Flight Simulator, that activity is a lot more sophisticated. So I think we'll see that going forward where people just have an expectation that they can do more through scripting and mods. And certainly with the addition of Bethesda to the Xbox family, they've got a long history of understanding how mods work We've seen that with Skyrim. So we're going to take risks. We assure you that we have them. They're in development. Those risks are already inherently risky to us as a corporate culture. But hey, we can run early access and then consumers can decide whether they want to support somebody. Maybe creators will be helped with that. And when we talk about creators, we don't really mean developers. We, we mean you. We mean you adding things to Halo. We mean you adding things to Flight Simulator. We mean you adding things to Forza Horizon 5. And so you see this entire kind of set of talking points shift away from, hey, are you going to make single-player cinematic adventures? Are you going to make things that people like Rick Hogue really, really enjoy and is one of the things that they love about video games? Sure, 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 we're doing that. But also, early access. And people can make anything that they want in our games. And you can see this kind of slide away from the original question. Now, Mr. Booty does try to cover things with respect to the studios themselves. We don't have a direction or mandate that says every game has to be an ongoing sustained game. That's good. That would be a poor business practice. Take surrealist platforming game Psychonauts. Thank you, Guardian. There might be a Psychonauts 3, but I'm not going to tell Tim Schafer to go make it. Knowing the history of games that he makes or doesn't make, insert early access critique, I don't think he's going to be making a game that has seasons and goes on for five years. It might take five years to develop. It depends. But I like Tim Schafer. I like Psychonauts. And we'll see how that turns out. Point is, Microsoft says, hey, we're not going to tell him what to make. That's good until 
Psychonauts and Double Fine are taking on resources that Phil or anybody else doesn't like, and they aren't delivering the return on investment that something like Sea of Thieves or Halo is. You have this kind of overall underlying discussion of what it is that Microsoft is looking for. They're saying the right things when it comes to these kinds of quotes, but it's still up to proving whether or not they're going to stand behind it. And this article, which attempts to establish that they will, I just don't see as terribly confirming, very supportive of what I personally like in the world of video games. Sea of Thieves has longevity, and we're going to have Halo multiplayer start to be based around seasons, but Compulsion Games, our studio in Montreal, weren't told to go build something that's going to have seasons or six pieces of DLC or something. Tell me why it was an important story for us to get out there, but there is no mandate that they've got to go figure out how to do seasons for that game. And again, this is the right language. We've heard horror stories of, say, Electronic Arts telling folks to put loot boxes into every game that they're making in a way that was very destructive to some of their brands. We've heard tales of publishers asking for certain things, cutting off certain things. And so when they say, hey, we're not mandating that there are live services, after all, we're trying to sell Game Pass, that's great. But when you talk about risky things, when you talk about resource risk, Psychonauts is undoubtedly risky for audience because even the original Psychonauts didn't do terribly well in its original iteration. And Tell Me Why probably has the same kind of issue, but it's not a risk that Phil Spencer tries to establish earlier in this article. It's not a risk of hundreds of people making hundreds of millions of dollar games. And if you're not going to see Xbox pursue those, it seems unjustified to give them credit for saying, hey, those are risky because of that cost. So we get this kind of catch-22 situation. Then you get the headline that we saw in GameSpot. Both Spencer and Booty are also very clear that if video games are going to expand their audience into new demographics and territories, they will need to tell new stories, and that will require new types of studios in new places. First, we have Mr. Spencer. It would surprise me if it didn't happen. Just knowing the talent that's available and the tools, such as game engines, Unity, and Unreal, that are so much more accessible and making things less risky, I would be surprised if in the next three to five years you don't see numerous studios in places that aren't the traditional hubs of video game development. In all honesty, I think post-pandemic, I would be surprised if you don't see a lot more studios that are scattered to the winds. I've got clients that are signing consulting agreements that are remote as all heck around the world. And I would suspect that that's happening more and more and more in all industries, not just video games, but that yes, you will see places that are now a little bit more of a hub of software development because folks are realizing that you don't necessarily have to be in a specific environment to make video games. Matt Booty, I think, actually has the better discussion point here that says there should be several hundred person studio in one of those territories, maybe, or at least devoted to servicing that territory's market and not for outsourcing or support, but a team building wherever the version of the best blockbuster game may be for that market. That is very much the vision. And that's a sentiment that I really, really like. And one of the things I've always loved are Japanese video games. And they have a very specific flavor because they have that specific cultural influence. I would love to play games with different cultural influences from different territories. And maybe I'll love some and maybe I won't like some so much. But I would love to get those flavors in video games. And it'll be interesting to see if Microsoft actually endeavors to support them or just allows them early access or what have you. I agree with Mr. Booty and Mr. Spencer that there are far more likely to be multiple areas of development now in 2021 and forward than there were even before the pandemic last decade or before. But 
I hesitate to say that Xbox and Microsoft has indicated that they are the ones that are going to be best positioned to make use of that. A lot of this winds up feeling like those articles that you saw from Sony that said, oh, we're very much in support of Japanese development when we're closing everything except the people that make Astrobot, when we're not really encouraging Japanese game development that isn't at least somewhat westernized. And a lot of this feels like, oh, yes, we're going to say the same things. We're going to say the right things here in Xbox land. But if you read between all this dialogue and all of the article itself, I don't get the comfort that I would love to get from Microsoft. Now, you do get this final paragraph here, but you'll note there's no quotes at all. It says, Spencer's mantra has always been to put the player at the center of the business. Then I highlighted the next sentence. So if players still want to play offbeat idiosyncratic games or giant narrative adventures that can't translate into multi-year franchises, platform holders must support them. And we don't get a Spencer quote for that, so we don't know exactly how he said it, but it's the right sentiment. There is an audience, there is a market for playing a narrative game, for playing a single player game. I know that because I am that. Now, I don't represent an entire market. Maybe I can't make enough money in your industry to support 1,100 people and $200 million. But your job, if you're running a company like this, is to figure out what that market is, to figure out what your budget is to make money on that market, and then to put products out into that market. Right now, I look at 2020 and 2021, and I look at a video game industry that still has stuff that I like to play, but not nearly as much as it used to in the previous generations. And you can classify that as risk, but companies like Nintendo, for instance, have been able to put out games with fewer people more often, with lesser graphics, absolutely, but with art direction that makes up for that in most instances. I still wish that the Switch were stronger and it wasn't constraining what those games could actually do. But there are ways to make games, there are ways to make products in every industry that match a market demand. And there is undoubtedly a market demand for big, epic, narrative adventures, as well as smaller, bite-sized narrative adventures. And I would certainly like to see Microsoft and Xbox with quotes that actually talk about that more than having words put in their mouth by a Guardian writer and then talking about early access and worldwide global studios. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoy talking about the business and law of things like video games, pop culture, technology, we've got a Patreon. Please check it out or just subscribe and tell your friends that we're having these conversations. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.